The visitor to Moscow's Red Square will see a statue of two men outside St. Basil's Cathedral. You've probably seen it yourself in many postcards. Most Western visitors do not know who these people are, but these two men are commemorated every year on Russia's National Day, November the 6th. They are celebrated because they brought an end to Polish and Swedish occupation of Russia, indeed of this very Red Square. They unified Russia at the end of a traumatic decade-long civil war known as the Time of Troubles. They brought to power the Romanov dynasty, who would last till 1917, and created a model of unrest that is the time of troubles, created a model of unrest and state integration that still informs Russian elites today. That civil war, that time of troubles, was triggered by two mysterious murders of sons of Ivan the Terrible. What is the murder mystery at the centre of Russia's 17th century crisis? That is the question on today's Burning Archive. Welcome everyone to the Burning Archive. I am Jeff Rich and I am a writer, historian, podcaster and now retired, one might say, almost redundant government official, no longer a government official, no longer constrained by those speech codes. And the Burning Archive podcast is my explorations of some of the more fascinating stories of history and culture that connect with the multipolar world we're encountering today. And today is a fascinating story. It's a fascinating story about uh, Russia, which is part of my series responding to the black legend of Russian history, uh, as outlined by Mark P. Smith in his wonderful book, The Russia Anxiety. And uh, this one, after looking at Catherine the Great and the Russian uh, Enlightenment last episode, this one goes back into the early 17th century and an extraordinary crisis that does in fact shape Russian history for quite some time afterwards, not least because it brings to power the Romanov dynasty who would reign over Russia until 1917. And the most remarkable stories of history, I, I find at least, are often so much better than fiction. Truth really is stranger than fiction, they say. And that is certainly true of the time of troubles. The time of troubles, or the Smutnya Vrema uh, in Russian, is the term, or sometimes uh, known as the Smuta. Uh, is the term for the civil war that began in Russia in 1604, uh, although some people set the date a little bit earlier, when a person claiming to be the rightful Tsar, the true son of Ivan the Terrible, who will be the focus of our podcast in the next episode, someone claiming to be the rightful Tsar, the true son of Ivan the Terrible, uh, who people had believed had died in 1591, the son had died in 1591, this man claimed and sought to overthrow the then Tsar, a man known 
as Boris Godunov, you might have heard. Uh, his name is uh, a famous Mussorgsky opera about him. This man would come to be known to history, that is the man who claimed to be the rightful son and heir to the Russian throne, as false Dmitri or the pretender Dmitri. And some friends of the podcast might have encountered false Dmitri uh, wandering aimlessly through Azeroth from time to time. But otherwise, unless you've studied Russian history, you've probably never heard of this remarkable character who is truly fascinating, false Dmitri, or the pretender Dmitri. His and Boris Godunov's tragic fates are forever intertwined, and we'll find out why as we go uh, to the uh, through the episode, but it does relate to those two mysterious murders of sons of Ivan the Terrible. The Smuta, or the Time of Troubles, uh, ended, began in 1604, but then it ended after a succession of short-lived claimants to the throne came and went, and after the two men celebrated in a red square in that statue in front of St. Basil's Cathedral, Menin and Pajarsky unified the Russian people to expel the foreign invaders and the various rebels and then installed the first Romanov, Tsar Mikhail Romanov. And just like civil wars in other countries, uh, the time of troubles, the Smuta is a source of unique national myths and political cultures. Uh, that is why it is commemorated uh, on Russia's National Day. And I should say it's been commemorated on that day since the 1990s after the, after the fall of the Soviet Union. Prior to that, of course, uh, early November was the day for the commemoration of the October or, no, you know, October in the uh, Russian calendar revolution. But after the fall of the Soviet Union, uh, Russia, the Russian Federation returned to the pre-1917 tradition of commemorating the national unification of Russia in the early 1600s as a result of the actions of Minin and Pajarsky. And uh, it was under one of the imperial czarist regimes that that extraordinary statue in front of St. Basil's was erected. The time of troubles involved a broad popular uprising in an autocratic country. So it has been invested with many, many loaded interpretations. In the Soviet era, it was interpreted as a peasant war, a kind of proto-revolution. And nationalist historians have read it as uh, the result of the interference of Poland-Lithuania. In the 17th century, there was a large state based around Poland, I guess what's part of uh, Eastern Germany and uh, Ukraine, um, uh, which was known as the Polish-Lithuanian Commonwealth, one of the more powerful states in Europe at that time. And some people at the time interpreted these, this civil war, this time of troubles, as God's judgment on Russia. It has been interpreted as a peasant war, as a Cossack revolt, as an outbreak of Ukrainian nationalism, 
and as an international Polish Jesuit conspiracy against Russia. It had long-term causes and short-term triggers. It had catastrophic consequences for Russia, uh, devastating consequences for the Russian people. And yet it also contains redemptive story arcs about some extraordinary personalities. Redemptive story arcs and tragic uh, story arcs too. It features talented men who rose to become Tsar and murdered sons raised from the dead who claimed to be the true Tsar. And it involved an invasion of Russia launched through what is today Ukraine and was then Poland, Lithuania. Indeed, some of the early battles of the uh, Russian Civil War of the 1600s, the the Time of Troubles, occurred in areas where there have been battles uh, in this last uh, 12 months in the Russian-Ukrainian War. But most of all, this extraordinary story has some unanswerable enigmas at the heart of it and some extraordinary human drama. It involved chaos, suffering, cruelty, sadness, and also comedy. And that most intriguing thing of all, a murder mystery, a whodunit. It is a story that should be more widely told outside of Russia. So let me tell you the story in four parts. There's the prologue or the backstory where we go from Ivan the Terrible, the extraordinary Tsar who ruled Russia from uh, the 1530s to the 1580s. Ivan the Terrible killing his son to Boris Godunov, maybe killing Ivan's son. And then I will tell you the broad outline narrative of the Time of Troubles itself, which features some extraordinary uh, backs and forths, but will boil it down and focus on the key character of the uh, extraordinary false Dimitri. And then we'll have a look at the mystery of false Dimitri, the potentially strangest truth of all, that perhaps he was who he said he was. And then we'll look at the long-term effects of the Time of Troubles, including uh, its impact on the establishment of the Romanov dynasty. So first the uh, backstory, and here we have to look a little bit at uh, the remarkable Tsar Ivan IV, Ivan the Terrible, or in Russian Ivan Grozny, which means something a little bit more like awe-inspiring, but also fear-inspiring, so terrible in some ways, who uh, was uh, became Tsar or the Grand Prince of Russia in the early 1530s as a young boy and then would uh, have a pretty tempestuous period in office until 1584 when he died. And uh, I will go into a bit more detail about Ivan the Terrible in the next episode, but uh, suffice to say for this part of the story that Ivan the Terrible was a complex and violent man. And uh, by the end of his long reign, 
there, Russia had been involved in some long, protracted, and not terribly successful wars, some successful too, and also been uh, engaged, like being involved in some terrible internal conflicts, hence his reputation for being terrible. And this had created quite an economic and fiscal crisis in Russia. Basically, uh, there was uh, the, the place was a wreck. He also left a succession crisis. He had had multiple sons, Ivan, Fyodor and Dmitri, and he had also had six or maybe seven wives. Uh, I think it might be seven. Even better than his near contemporary, Henry VIII. In 1581, Ivan killed his eldest son, Ivan Ivanovich, and uh, there's a dramatic painting painted in the 19th century of Ivan looking remorseful after having struck his son with a staff and realising what has he done. His second son, Theodore, was a sickly, pious and in most accounts speculatively speculatively, mentally retarded or intellectually disabled, perhaps might be a better way of putting it, maybe as a result of some kind of childhood disease. He was not good Tsar material. And the youngest son, Dmitri, was the son of Ivan's sixth wife, which in the eyes of the Orthodox Church was a couple of marriages too many, Maria Nagoya, and so, uh, according to church law, she, it, uh, Dimitri was really an Ill, illegitimate uh, child, or at least a suspect in relationship to his claim to the throne. On Ivan the Terrible's death in 1584, Theodore became Tsar. But given his character, there was a power struggle among the elite and the powerful advisers. On one side were the clans related to Ivan's sixth wife and his uh, quite young youngest child, Dmitri. And their opponents were a group led by a talented and effective boyar or lord known as Boris Godunov, who I mentioned earlier. And there were two other key members of this group. One was Fyodor Nikitich Romanov, that name of the dynasty, and another man called Vasily Shusky, who we will, uh, whose family we will uh, encounter again, who were with Godunov part of a regency council established by Ivan IV, given he knew his son Fyodor was not quite up to the job. Godunov had one great advantage in this power struggle. His sister, Irina had been the childhood playmate of Tsar Fyodor and was now his wife. So she then was the Tsarina. Smart, educated and sophisticated, she exercised significant influence over Fyodor and for a time while Fyodor was Tsar, she was co-regent. Arguably, she was uh, Russia's first female Tsar. Indeed, for a brief period after Fyodor's death, she was, in fact, Russia's first female Tsar. But she had married late 
and the couple were infertile. Given Fedor's other problems, it might have been his fault. But so it was not until 1592, when she was 35, did she bear a child, uh, a young girl who sadly died within two years. There was no male heir. Her brother, Boris Godunov, uh, became regent and de facto ruler of Russia in 1586 after uh, the Fedor Romanov's death. But many of the factions and the various power groups, uh, the elites we might say, resented his influence given he had no real dynastic claim to the throne. He was a talented man who had made good and had perhaps uh, bruised a few egos along the way. So this created a terribly unstable situation. And the rival group uh, related to the Nagoya clan, uh, related to Ivan the Terrible's sixth wife, Maria or Muffin Nagoya, had been sent away from court, including with Ivan's son, Dmitri, to a town about 100 or so kilometres away from Moscow called Uglich. Then, and here we start to get to the core murder mystery at the heart of the time of troubles, then, in 1591, a strange murder mystery at the heart of this story happens. Dmitri appears to be killed. And I say appears here. Advisedly, Maria Nagoya accuses, that is Ivan the Terrible's uh, wife, Maria Nagoya, mother of Dmitri, accuses Godunov, Boris Godunov, of assassinating him. There is an investigation uh, that dismisses this accusation and finds that Dmitri stabbed himself in the midst of an epileptic fit during which he inconveniently had a dagger in his hand. There were some irregularities with the funeral, but on the whole, despite a few protests in Uglich, people moved on. In the meantime, Boris Godunov uh, continued to rule as regent and was doing quite a good job in uh, rather trying circumstances. He did so well, indeed, that by 1598, when the sickly Fyodor died, he managed to get himself elected Tsar. Quite a feat. Perhaps the only Tsar who was so elected in Russian history. In particular, uh, Boris Godunov expanded and put up defensive fortresses, especially to the south uh, of, of Moscow, so down towards what we now think of as uh, Crimea and eastern Ukraine, the Donbass. He, in fact, founded cities like Voronezh in the Don and the Volga sort of areas as well. He fought quite effectively against the Swedes, the Turks, and the Crimean Tatars, and the large groups of bandits or Cossacks who were quite common in the area south near the Don, the Volga, and uh, what we now know as the Donbass in central or eastern Ukraine. This was a rather complex area. 
And it was also an area where a lot of people were fleeing because of the economic problems in Russia, uh, following on Ivan the Terrible's death. A lot of people had resettled there. But the challenges facing Godunov were many. The economic problems left by Ivan IV had led many people to flee central Russia and go to these borderlands. And this created problems for working agricultural land. And it created a large zone of de facto lawlessness, piracy and banditry at the edges of Russian territory, especially on the southern frontier. Godunov did his best to crack down on this lawlessness against the bandits, Cossacks, rogue traders, peasants, who were formed from multiple ethnic groups uh, from that area. But this also created enormous financial problems for the military, and the economy was not going so well, and enormous resentment down in the south part of Russia. He was asserting his authority over the barons and centralising power, strengthening the hand of the state and the church to prevent dissolution. But in response to all these good efforts of strengthening the state, the rival great families, the Romanovs and the Shutskis, were seething. And then Boris Godunov had his... uh, his worst piece of bad luck. He got wrecked by climate change. So the late the late 1500s, the early 1600s, was a time historians now know as the Little Ice Age, uh, where not just in Russia, but across the world, there was a significant cooling which had a dreadful effect on harvests, in agricultural yields, and obviously Russia was already a pretty cold place. So, and and this did not just affect Russia; it also affected other areas as well, leading to significant instability. Let's just think about the Guy Fawkes conspiracy in England, which was occurring at the same time. But in 1601 to 1603, there was a terrible famine in Russia which was exacerbated by the fact that already Russia was a pretty cold place, which had relatively low agricultural yields, not such a great climate for agriculture at that point. And this devastating three-year famine, uh, and think about that famine for three years, not just one, but for three years, killed hundreds of thousands of people and destabilised society and no doubt led to more fleeing to the southern border. So much of Godunov's good work was wrecked. The legitimacy of this Tsar, who had not come from a true dynasty that had ruled Russia for centuries, was starting to be questioned. He had lost, to use the Chinese phrase, the mandate of heaven, just as the Little Ice Age-induced famines would similarly destroy the legitimacy of other states in Eurasia, Uh, in the 17th century, including the Ming. And amongst all this unrest and this this tragedy and this uh, social destabilisation, fragmentation, social fragmentation, you could almost say, those old rumours spread by Maria Nagoya that Boris Godunov had been the killer 
of Tsarevich Dmitri in Uglitch in 1891 started up again. And these rumours were fanned by his principal rivals, the aristocratic Romanovs and Shusky families. And then one of the most enigmatic figures in Russian history walks onto stage in Poland at the estate of a leading Polish aristocrat. A man comes forward and claims to be Zariewicz Dmitry, son of Ivan the Terrible and the rightful heir to the Russian throne. He claimed he was rescued from the assassination plot in 1591 and had spent years being protected by the Nagoya clan with a concealed identity. He was convincing. Over time, Maria Nagoya herself would attest that this indeed was his son, and so would one of Ivan's leading advisers, Bogdan Belsky, who also has wandered through the lands of Azeroth occasionally. Bogdan Belsky would, was his godfather, and he similarly claimed that this man was indeed the true true son of Ivan the Terrible. The Poles could not believe their luck. They had had many border religious and geopolitical disputes with Russia, and now they had uh, the perfect weapon, the opposition leader, so to speak, the Alexei Navalny of the 17th century, with which they could strike an engineer regime change. So they supported this man, known as false, well, later known as false Dmitri. Let, let's call him Dmitri, just Dmitri. They, Dmitri and the Poles assembled an army of approximately 2,000 Polish noblemen and a few thousand Zaporozhian and Don Cossacks. They marched into Russian territory near Kiev and the city of Chernigov, which you may have heard discussed in reports on the latest Ukraine war. And as they marched, they gathered more supporters among the seething, discontented badlands of southern Russia, driven by the resentments of Godunov's tough but effective crackdowns on these badlands, this lawless, wild south of Russia. Boris Godunov, of course, fought back. And one way in which he fought back was the 17th century version of an information war. He claimed that this Dmitri was a pretender. And what's more, he claimed he was a defrocked, debauched priest known as Grigori Otrepev, who had failed at being a priest and been sort of like, you know, dismissed as being a priest and had tried to make good by uh, betraying his mother country by uh, and faith by working with the Catholic Poles. Dmitri continues to march into Russia and with growing support and some success on the battlefields. And then nature... And random events intervened again. 
In April 1605, Tsar Boris Godunov died suddenly. Not entirely unexpectedly, since he had been sick, but he had now been at the centre of Russian power since, well, the 1580s, the 1570s. So for, I don't know, what's that, 30, let's say 30 years. And uh, the loss of that individual, that character, destabilised the Russian regime. Without his skill and authority, his regime collapsed. His son, who was apparently quite an impressive uh, young man, but only 16 years old, took power briefly, but amidst a nest of vipers, he alienated everyone. And the rival boyars, or uh, lords, turned on him. In effect, there was a kind of a mutiny of the army and a growing belief, including in, including in Moscow, amongst the citizens of Moscow, that, Tsar, oh, that Dmitri was, in fact, the true and rightful heir, that people did, in fact, support his claim and that Russia would be better off returning to the true dynasty rather than suffer the, the judgment of God that had come through the famines and all the rest of it that had led to Boris Godunov losing the mandate of heaven. The death of Boris Godunov would prove to be decisive in making Dmitri Tsar. It's likely that he would have maintained order, and his, uh, but his 16-year-old son was simply unable to contain the forces of mutiny and splintering. The army mutinied, the, the elites defected, and the regime fell apart. And Dmitri was also quite smart in winning over new followers. He made conciliatory proclamations offering peace and pardons and rewards to followers. And there was a, a broad scale level of, there was broad support across multiple social groups for this new prince. As the historian Chester Dunning says in his uh, well, I think quite magnificent, Russia's first civil war, the time of troubles and the founding of the Romanov dynasty, which uh, I'll put a link in the show notes to if you're keen to follow up more about this extraordinary story. He says, Dmitri proved to be a consistently clement prince who was extremely reluctant to spill blood, and he was by this time quite popular. Indeed, he marches all the way to Moscow and becomes the Tsar. And for a little bit of colour, let me just read from uh, Chester Dunning's description of the day on June 20th, 1605, when Tsar Dmitri entered Moscow. On tw June 20, 1605, Moscow was at last ready for Tsar Dmitri's formal entry into the city. The boyars first brought him beautiful garments to wear and asked him to receive his father's inheritance in the name of God. 
Dmitri then made a triumphal entry into Moscow as a conquering hero. He rode with the boyars at his side and was preceded and followed by dozens of beautifully attired courtiers, hundreds of his loyal Belarusian cavalry in full armour, and several thousand Cossacks and Russian troops. Up to 8,000 men participated in the parade and the procession took hours to complete. The crowds along the path were huge and well attired for the occasion. The incredible noise of scores of kettle drums and trumpets in the Tsar's parade was matched by the ceaseless pealing of the city's church bells and deafening shouts such as You are the true sun shining over Russia. Dmitri was met on Red Square by a large delegation of bishops, priests and monks carrying crosses, icons, banners and holy relics. Dmitri stopped briefly, wept openly and publicly thanked God for his success. Then the bishops led him into the Kremlin to the sound of bells and shouts of Long live our Dmitri Ivanovich, Tsar of all the Russias. Once inside the Kremlin, Dmitri was accompanied to Archangel Cathedral and wept over the coffins of his father, Ivan the Terrible, and his brother, Tsar Fedor Ivanovich. Following that, he was greeted in the Cathedral of the Assumption as the sacred ruler and defender of the Russian Orthodox Church. Archpriest Terenti lavishly praised the new Tsar and admonished him to imitate Christ in his mercy towards the people. Then the boyars led Dmitri to the palace, seated him on the throne of his father and paid homage to him. So it was quite something. But Dmitri would be Tsar for barely, not even quite, a year. He did some good things and some strange things. And there is much dispute in the historical record about his, uh, I guess, you know, year as Tsar. Some people, um, because he was deposed after the year, as we'll get to, um, But Chester Dunning, in his major revision of the history, effectively argues that uh, he governed well and was almost, in some ways, something of a forerunner of Peter the Great. He was a secure and confident ruler throughout this time, even at the time of his assassination a year later. Indeed, he even goes so far, and perhaps this is going maybe a little bit too far, especially after uh, we've spoken about the extraordinary Catherine the Great, that he was one of the few really enlightened rulers Russia ever had. But uh, one of the strange things he did do was to marry a Polish Catholic princess, Marina Minisech, who was the daughter of the Palatine of San Sandomiers, quite a powerful figure in church. And the Catholic Church um, wanted, oh, not the Catholic Church, the Orthodox Church clearly wanted the princess to convert to the Orthodox faith as part of the marriage. 
but she did not want to, and Dimitri supported her in doing so. And uh, this led to, uh, if not widespread resentment, then certainly uh, uh, resentment amongst some key elites who use this as something to, uh, as a as a cause to justify their their plots and their conspiracies to overthrow who they would call false Dimitri. And leading those plots and conspiracies was our old friend Vasily Shusky. He immediately begins uh, to plan assassinations and conspiracies, including with some support from a rather zealous, intolerant leader of the Russian Orthodox Church, Metropolitan Hermogen. And uh, the, the various resentments amongst the elites come to a head to some degree uh, or, or during the celebrations over several weeks for the marriage uh, of the Tsar to the Polish princess. A large number of Polish uh, guests come into Moscow for the marriage and they don't all sort of behave all that well and um, causing some resentment and, you know, so there's the drunkenness and violence and looting and uh, general sort of a level of contempt shown for the local Russians by the Poles. And our friend Vasily Shutsky decides in this context that this is his moment to uh, undertake his assassination attempt. In May, on the 15th and 16th of May, 1605, six assassins actually creep into the Kremlin uh, with the aim of killing the Tsar and the uh, Princess Marina, or Tsarina Marina. And, uh, but they get caught. They do not reveal the conspiracy Shusky uh, has in mind, so he gets a second go, and on the 17th of May, a large number of troops come in to organise the surprise attack, and they also engage in a pretty brutal massacre of the many Polish wedding guests in Moscow. And then we have what is... Maybe something of a bit of a thriller action as well as our murder mystery. So if I read again from uh, Chester Dunning's uh, wonderful Russia's First Civil War, he describes how assassins kill some of the guards at the Kremlin Palace in order to force their way into Dmitri's palace. At that point, the Tsar sent a Basmanov, one of his key uh, guards, from his chambers to find out what the alarm was about. And as soon as he emerged, Tatichev killed him. Tatichev's one of the um, uh, assassins. Then as the assassins crowded into the palace, the Tsar and a few guards retreated to an inner room and locked the doors. While the attackers broke the doors down, Dmitri shouted a quick warning to his bride and her ladies-in-waiting who were in an adjacent room, and then he attempted to jump from a window to a nearby building, but he slipped and fell to the ground far below, which broke his leg. 
Had he made it to the upper building and managed to reach the crowd pouring into the Kremlin to save him, there is little doubt that he would have survived. As Massa put it, the townspeople would have massacred the lords and conspirators. As it turned out, the dazed Tsar was temporarily rescued by a few nearby Streltsy, that is, uh, musketeers, who opened fire on the assassins as they rushed forward to finish their task. The Streltsy managed to kill one or two traitors before being overwhelmed by them. Tsar Dmitri pleaded with the assassins to ask his mother if he was the real Dmitri, or take him to the Red Square and let him speak. The assassins, however, could not afford to bring him before the people. Fearing the rapid approach of crowds of Tsar Dmitri's loyal subjects, the traitors quickly killed the Tsar. Under the gaze of Vasily Golitsyn, a merchant named Milnikov denounced Dmitri as a heretic and shot him. Then the assassins hacked the Tsar to death, leaving at least 21 wounds and smashing in his skull. So ended the life of a remarkable person. Vasily Shutsky becomes Tsar, and the remarkable Tsar Dmitri is overthrown and assassinated. But Vasily Shutsky is haunted or uh, fearful of the uh, popular support, let's say, for Dmitri and the image of him as, in fact, the true claimant to the throne, something that Shusky simply cannot rightfully make. So he engages in some uh, grotesque desecrations of Dmitri's body on Red Square, a real horror show which is aiming to desecrate uh, Dmitri and he uh, commences the long, I guess, propaganda campaign against Dmitri, uh, building on Godunov's uh, story that he was a debauched and defrocked priest. All sorts of extraordinary stories get promoted about Dmitri. And his body is, in fact, denied a burial. He's burned in the midst of some a weird piece of equipment that he'd uh, constructed, a sort of a mini little fortress that he'd constructed, Dmitri had constructed. And on the same day that, uh, and people say his body was burning in hell, on the same day that the the new regime decides to burn Dmitri's body in hell, the, dis- the body of the murdered true Dmitri, murdered in Uglitch in 1891, is finally discovered and brought to Moscow and then installed in the Kremlin Cathedral where uh, czars, etc. are buried. And if you go to the Kremlin today in, uh, I think it's the Archangel uh, Cathedral, you will see there the the tomb, I guess, of the Tsarevich Dmitri uh, killed in 1591. But was he really killed in 1591 or was it really the true Tsar Dmitri was he truly who he said he was 
was the body discovered with some very curious timing uh, immediately after a assassination conspiracy and uh, desecration of a rival for power. Was it a little bit of uh, 17th century fake news? In any case, Shusky goes on to be Tsar, and then there is a major revolt. And I'll go through the remaining events of the Time of Troubles a little bit more quickly, simply because uh, I guess I've tried to focus the story a little bit on, on the extraordinary false Dmitri. But there's a major a revolt called the Bolotnikov Revolt, uh, sort of again based around southern Russia. And then, as if one pretender to the throne was not strange enough, a second false Dmitri appears. Uh, now there's less doubt that this man was truly a fake and an opportunist. Uh, but I think, remarkably enough, Tsar Dmitri the first false Dmitri's wife, Marina uh, Mizninich, uh, ends up marrying this second false Dmitri. And this second false Dmitri, even though he is no doubt a fake and opportunist, is quite successful in terms of mobilising the civil war uh, against Shusky. They fight for three years against Shusky between 1607 and 1610. And it's really Shusky's uh, overthrow of Tsar Dmitri that reignites the civil war in Russia. And over this, uh, this fighting over the years 1607 to 1610, in 1609, Sweden enters the war on behalf of Shusky, sensing a chance to break up Russia and claim some territories. But in 1610, Shusky, who, as you have probably gathered by now, was not a very nice man, is deposed, and the crown of Russia is offered to Vladislav, king of Poland, and the Pole, Polish-Lithuanian uh, Commonwealth, uh, come and occupy Moscow. False Dmitri II is murdered, but even more pretenders emerge. Um, it had become the fashion, so to speak, of uh, <laughs> the time of troubles to claim to be Ivan the Terrible's true son. Russia was on its knees. In a way, it would not really be again until perhaps the Russian Civil War of 1917 to 2022, or in a different way, the 1990s. And then in 1611 and 1612, uh, homegrown militias start to form to overthrow the Swedish and Polish occupiers. In 1612, these militias uh, are organised, are successful in actually liberating Moscow. And these militias are organised by Minin and Pozharsky, the men who were celebrated in the statue on Red Square in front of St. Basil's Cathedral. Minin was a butcher from, uh, or a merchant butcher, a meat trader perhaps, uh, from, from Nizhny Novgorod, a regional city in Russia, 
And Pajarsky was kind of a general. Uh, Minin was, if you like, the uh, finance guy. And Pajarsky was the military guy. And together they successfully organise significant resistance and genuinely start to unify uh, the Russian people uh, against the occupiers. And, um, of course, in this time... There are quite a few people, Russia, Sweden, and even England gets the idea that uh, in Russia's time of troubles, its its uh, social disintegration, now was the time for other states to swoop like vultures, and the pirate kingdom of Great Britain, of course, was amongst them. As Chester Dunning says... Russia's internal misery went to the heads of several kings before the Russian people finally put an end to the civil wars. So Menin and Pajarsky successfully mobilise this this sort of civil resistance and they ally with the Romanov family who uh, were there uh, from the start in that Regency Council that was appointed by Ivan the Terrible. Indeed, the Romanov family was had a perhaps reasonable claim to some royal blood, I guess, or royal descent, or royal connection with the dynasty, because one of the Romanovs was Anastasia Romanova, uh, who was Ivan the Terrible's first and most loved wife. In any case, the, the militias uh, and the Romanovs uh, worked together to expel the Swedish and Polish occupiers and to restore law and order to Russia. And in 1613, Mikhail Romanov is crowned Tsar. So ended the time of troubles, and so began the Romanov dynasty that would end in the brutal murder of the last Romanovs in Ekaterinburg in uh, 1917 or 1918. As uh, Mark B. Smith says of this time, the dangerous times are exceptions because most times are normal. And if I just quote from his book, The Russia Anxiety, he comments that the Polish and Swedish forces had failed to, uh, in their strike on Russia and Moscow, to take enduring control of Moscow. But Muscovite civilization was still in freefall. In 1613, popular resilience and dynastic decisiveness saved it. The Zemsky Sobor, which was like a kind of a parliament sort of thing, a popular assembly of, of you know, an elite popular assembly um, that elected the uh, Romanov or, or, you know, conferred legitimacy on the Romanov, put its faith in young Mikhail Romanov. This was a vital moment, not just because of the dynastic decision, but because an embryonic Russian nation became visible. It was headed up by the townsfolk of Moscow and was distinct from the monarchy. With the Poles gone and other enemies exhausted, the time of troubles slipped away. It left its mark, 
the institutions of the Muscovite state had evolved and survived, the Russian tradition of protest had been invented, and the western border vulnerable to Poland's and Sweden's interference would thereafter always define the Russians' own anxiety. But Mikhail brought recovery and stability. Indeed, the next uh, few Romanov monarchs, uh, czars, were were remarkably successful. And so, in the end, Russia had a not-too-bad 17th century. It helped set up some of the prosperity and the uh, Europeanization that Peter the Great would subsequently introduce from sort of 1690, roughly 75 years after the end of the uh, Time of Troubles. What a remarkable story that is. And before we leave it, we have to address the extraordinary mystery at the heart of the Time of Troubles, and that is, who was Dimitri? So, as uh, if you go to the cathedral in uh, Moscow, there be a story presented there that, as I mentioned, has dates from the date, the day of of uh, the false Dimitri's brutal um, and brutal desecration of his corpse and the discovery of the claim to be true body of the true Tsarevich Dimitri killed in Uglitch in 1891. But there are there are holes in this story and so there are really i guess three broad three broad theories about who dimitri or false dimitri was the first is that story that was spread by boris godunov and by vasily shusky that he was a uh, deceptive monk uh, grigory uh, Otropov. And Chester Dunning goes into some detail looking at this story and there's a whole bunch of uh, facts that aren't quite consistent with this story that it's a little bit hard to marry up the timelines of what one really knows about the biography Otropov and, and what was known about False Dimitri as well. So that's one story one version of the story that it was a deceptive monk that false Dimitri was this deceptive monk uh, debauched and defrocked monk uh, Grigory Otropov the second version of the story and uh, I guess that's the dominant story uh, in most of the historiography Uh, the second uh, version would be that uh, the person was uh, Grigory Otropov, but Grigory Otropov deluded himself into believing that he was, in fact, truly uh, Dmitri. I guess it's a variation on the story. And then the third possibility, uh, strange that it seems, is that maybe false Dmitri was actually who he said he was. He really was 
the true son of Ivan the Terrible, and he really did escape back in 1891. And the fact that he was the true son, perhaps in some respects, does explain some of the extraordinary things in this story, that he was recognised as the true son by by Ivan the Terrible's wife, Maria Nagoya, and by Bogdan Belsky, Ivan the Terrible's courtier and the Dimitri's godfather. On this count, this is what uh, Chester Dunning says. Now, obviously, it is impossible at this distance to know, and I guess having uh, had uh, the false Dimitri's body destroyed in the way that it was, there's no way in which a 21st century DNA test can be conducted on the body. But this is what Chester Dunning says. The possibility that the Tsarevich survived and later came to the throne has over the years been supported by a small number of investigators of the subject. There is actually some evidence to back up that astonishing claim. For example, there were suspicious irregularities associated with the Uglitch affair. Several sources claim that another boy was substituted for Dmitri before the Tsarevich's death. Captain Margaret specifically suggested that the Nagoys and the Romanovs were responsible for the switch. A contemporary English source claimed that the Nagoys and Bogdan Belsky were involved. Belsky, who was Tsarevich's Dmitri's Godfather had tried to seize power in the name of Dmitri shortly after Tsar Ivan died. Later in 1605, while participating in the popular uprising in Moscow in support of Dmitri, Belsky swore on a cross that the pretender was truly his godson and that he and others had known about the Tsarevich's survival in 1591 and had sheltered him from Boris Godunov. For years. So incredible. And if I can just foreshadow the next episode about Ivan the Terrible, there's mysteries there that relate to even Ivan the Terrible's death and the role of Bogdan Belsky. So we will never know, but part of me kind of wants to believe the astonishing possibility that false Dimitri was indeed the true Dimitri. In any case, the time of troubles was uh, tragic, terrible events for Russia, but it also had a dramatic impact Uh, The stories of the Time of Troubles were told all across Europe uh, from returning mercenaries and this extraordinary drama of what was in fact the largest state in Europe, largest country in Europe. But it uh, defined, I guess, a recurring nightmare in Russian history of state and social disintegration. Uh, And it left its mark, but did not really define its character. But every national day, Russians commemorate this great trauma and the, their country's ultimate resilience. 
and perhaps it might uh, be especially poignant uh, these days to remember the failure of the opportunistic efforts of Poland, 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 Lithuania and Sweden to break up Russia uh, when all of NATO and the Anglo-Americans' efforts to break up Russia and to put new pretenders on the throne will likely fail for the same reason that they did in the 1600s. If we shed the black legend of Russian history, perhaps we can stop trying to engineer regime change in this extraordinary uh, society and civilization. So, fantastic story. If you are interested in wanting to read more about the Time of Troubles, uh, I absolutely would recommend Chester Dunning's Russia's First Civil War, The Time of Troubles and the Founding of the Romanov Dynasty. And I will put a link to where you can get that book in the show notes. Let me also just encourage everyone to share and subscribe. And uh, let me also let everyone know that I have started releasing some of the Burning Archive podcasts on the Burning Archive YouTube channel. Uh, I'm still doing these as audio podcasts, but I'm sort of, you know, adding a few pictures to the audio. And I'm also doing a couple of extra YouTube uh, videos on on current events and, and um, books and history and all the fascinating things that we discuss on the Burning Archive. So next week, we're going to be talking about that remarkable person who kicked off the time of troubles by murdering his son and uh, leaving a question mark over the fate of his youngest son, Ivan the Terrible. And that will be uh, fascinating, perhaps one of the better known, if most poorly understood figures in Russian history. So until then... Uh, again, uh, do check me out on various uh, platforms and I hope you uh, enjoyed this extraordinary story of Russia's first civil war, the time of troubles. And as we go out, the music playing is from Boris Godunov, Mazorsky's opera. And the opening music in today's podcast was the prologue of that uh, great opera. And this music is the love music where Tsarina Marina and False Dimitri find love in Red Square. And as surely many people must have felt during those time of troubles, do remember that what thou lovest well will not be reft from thee.